Borak Dog Earthlets. My name is Conrad, and this is the 11th episode of Space Spinner Reaction, a podcast where we try to make sense of the UK's classic comic action three issues at a time. This episode, we're covering action for September 1976, issues 31 to 33. This episode, the Grudge War concludes, the probationer gets out, kids rule, okay, and Rick Mason gets ahead of Hookjaw, if you know what I mean. <laughs> oh no, Paul Oh Rick. no. <laughs> um, and besides the actual action, this episode we got a special guest host, uh, Eamon Clark of the Mega City Book Club Podcast. Thank you, Conrad. The show. Yeah. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. Uh, ready for some action. All right. Yeah. I really want to thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you've actually got a lot of bl- a lot of blame coming for, for this thing happening in the first place. Just going to started checking out all these old actions after we uh, talked about um, um, Hookjaw for the Shaco episode of the City Book Club and just sort of history of killer animals in British comics. <laughs> so, yes killer animals killer movie killer animal movies and killer animal comics yeah uh yeah i did sort of partly infect you with uh, my 1970s action virus <laughs> i'm afraid but it's very violent comic absolutely yeah so i just wanted to know um do you like do you have a, a a history with action did you read it when it was coming out or um or like afterwards or anything so true action confessions here. No, I didn't read it in the 70s. In fact, I think, Conrad, it probably wouldn't have been allowed in the house, I'm afraid. So <laughs> if I did see a copy, it would have been in the school playground. Um, uh, so no, I'm not I'm not really a master of action. I'm like yourself. I'm more of a student of the action comic and I've sort of mm. gone back to it. I mean, obviously Hookjaw, because I think... You'll probably know better than me. I think Hookjaw is still the only one that's been collected in any form so far. Yes, I believe that's true. Yeah. Um, so most of us have to find other ways of going back and seeing what all the fuss was about with action. Because, you know, uh, we almost don't need to say it. Every time somebody talks about the origins of 2000 AD, it always starts with action. Yeah, definitely. It's such a key part. And that's part of why I did the show, just because it feels like everybody talks about it, but it's very much like... You know, so much of action is just sort of a cover and something about a shark that I really didn't want to see, like, what, what's actually going on with this thing, you know? And we're going to get to that, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's real. It's the, it's, it's the whole Megillah, this episode, for yeah. sure. But what um, I find interesting yeah. about the comic, um, you know, just before we start getting into the sure. action itself, is because uh, in the 70s, we were obsessed with all these violent Hollywood movies that we'd heard of. But, of course, we couldn't see them. Uh, and, and, of course, we had that weird thing that movies like Dirty Harry or Rollerball or Jaws, they would come, uh, they'd be on the big screen. We probably couldn't get in to see them unless we were, you know, old enough to convincingly sneak in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, in the 70s, movies just disappeared then, didn't they? Unless they got a second run. Oh, yeah, um, there wasn't, like, video or anything like that. Exactly. So, you know, I mean, action... Action sort of pre-dates sort of dates the moral panic of the video nasties that would come in the next decade. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so all we had was we'd see pictures in magazines and books occasionally about Rollerball or Jaws or Dirty Harry uh, or older movies, you know, trucking movies like The Wages of Fear or Hell Drive. And I think all these sort of things that sort of feed into uh, action as a comic. Um, and we were just fascinated with them. We were obsessed with these violent films that we knew about, we'd heard about, we taught them about. Um, and the only way I suppose that people got hold of them, as, as Pat Mill said, was just uh, let's do a um, let's do versions of them in the action comic. 
And no wonder it was a runaway 200,000 copies a week success, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I remember a, a similar feeling when when I was a kid, just, um, and there would be video, but it would often take like two years for something to come out on video, was the uh, also like the novelization of movies. That feels like something that, that doesn't exist that much these days, but was very much, when I was a lad, like you could read like, um, I remember reading the the novelization of like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and be like, this is awesome, because I couldn't right. like, because the video would, was still years away from coming out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yes, that's right. New movie novelizations. Uh, I think the Alien movie was the first one I remember, getting the Alan Dean Foster book for that. Oh, excellent. Um, but I went back and looked because I'd used, I tell you what I looked for in the 1970s for films, and just to give me a reference, was the James Bond movie. And it basically mm. was three years before from release in the cinemas to the Bond movies turning up on TV. And of course, you know, when you're a kid, three years. Yeah, that's an eternity. Sure. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, even if rollerball and jaws turn up on television highly doubtful anyway no they were right. somewhat they weren't quite james bond they weren't going to be shown at uh, prime time on christmas day um, <laughs> uh, you know it was going to be three years before they came anywhere near the tv so yeah we had to get hold of it somehow and i guess action was uh, um the obvious sort of like place to go for some kids sadly not me i'm afraid ah oh, you know now well you know now we can all experience it in our in, in, in our second childhood you know deep exactly. Exactly, yeah. that's that, that's my move for sure <laughs> awesome all right so let's um um jump into it i i suppose um starting off with a a new thrill that i was i i i i, I want to say i'm surprised at how late this comes in the run of action just because it's so to me it's so linked with the comic itself and that's a story one kids rule okay <laughs> Oh no! Here we go. Indeed, uh, the, the the writers uh, Chris Louder um, the, and with Mark by by Mike White. So um, yeah, like, like I said, this one's like you know just because of the of the stories of its cancellation, feels so linked to it. I'm so, I'm so shocked that it's just sort of coming in issue thirty one as a replacement for the uh, for Blackjack, which which concluded uh, last episode. But okay, <laughs> it's the distant future, nineteen eighty six, and the human race is dying. They're all having heart attacks and disintegrating and stuff. Unaffected by that is those no good kids. They're running wild all over the place, busting up the school. It's a worldwide crisis, apparently caused by melting ice caps and pollution and stuff. You know, it's bad times. Even the government guys doing the exposition are dying from it. Oh, man. Yeah, it's terrible. It's like extinction in gender, um, you know, back in the 70s or in the 80s, I guess. Oh, my gosh. Only kids under the age of 20 are going to survive. I mean, this very much brought to mind a whole bunch of different, um, like, books and movies from, from my own youth where that have a, a very similar plot to this. I think, um, like, The Girl Who Owned a City was a book I read in school that was about. I think that, that one was everybody over the age of 12 died, but it was very much like kids alone running you know, rebuilt like Lord of the Flies, but in like regular world and not like on a desert island, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And here we are, the kids rule okay. And what do they want to do? They don't want to rebuild society. They don't want to sort out food and power and stuff like that. They want to fight. Yeah, just roving gangs of kids uh, uh, roaming the street. Yeah, six months later, nine-tenths of the world's adults are dead. The few remaining are just sort of... The, the few remaining elders are just getting kicked to death by the by roving, 
roaming gangs of kids, um, in- including the Ma- Malvern Road mob. Whoa. Oh, no. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, Malvern Road Mob is led by Ray Spencer, and he he pulls some kids off an oldie getting kicked, but that causes some problems with the co-leader of the gang, Mick Roker, who's got glasses so you can't trust him. (laughs) (laughs) And so you can tell him, which is helpful in comic characters. Oh, yes, absolutely, especially in in, in this era where where panels are small and, like, the art can feel rushed sometimes. It's good to have identifiers spencer says that 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 he draws the line at at murder but roker isn't is isn't isn't trying to hear that um because it's so because of that it's time to feet to settle control of the gang so it's time for a knife fight which is always awesome it's very west side story here you know it is the yeah street gangs with their knife fights and <laughs> the stuff. jets and the sharks are at it Absol- again absolutely yeah a lot of uh a lot of uh you know synchronized snapping <laughs> finger um, snapping <laughs> yeah. but as they square up oh a bunch of bikers roll in <gasps> bike carnage uh, and not for the first time in this comic or not for the last time in fact yeah no the, you know a, a con like the, the these bikers just constant threat to all all 1970s things i think <laughs> so these guys are taking over the area they might be deadheads but you're just plain dead oh, the uh the malverns get get beaten up and start plotting revenge it's like you know if, if only they had some guns they could take them out but apparently the adults and this feels like, 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 like a good plan actually uh when they realized all the adults were dying it was just gonna be kids they apparently hid all the guns so the kids just could just kill each other like that i guess absolutely all they've got is a few air pistols yeah so with those they could probably still do some damage i guess so that night they sneak up to the bike the bikers they plink them with their air pistols and then use the ultimate weapon which is of course dropping a giant brick wall on them yep absolutely (laughs) The whole war's coming down on top of us. Yeah. They're they're incapacitated, so the Malverns wait in, and my new favorite character, Benny, this this kid with a bat, just starts smashing up their bikes and or faces, which is really awesome. Yeah, absolutely. As the dust settles, Spencer realizes that Roker and his guys aren't around, and that old guy, now even more beaten up, you know, beaten to death basically, reveals that there are guns hidden in his basement, and Roker's on his way to get them. No. So we gotta stop him. Oh jeez. Oh dear, yes. Uh yeah, we gotta get the cache of guns. The bad guys are after them as well. Ugh. Yeah. Like I you know, this is one of those things where 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 everybody's a, some kind of bad guy, but I guess yeah. the, the the least worst guys have to stop them. <laughs> so Spencer quickly figures out where the basement is and takes most of his gang along with him to get the guns while leaving one or two behind to dig a grave for the old dead guy. Oh, it's, yeah. He's, yeah. That's how you know he's honorable. You he's know? the honorable good bad guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 very much the opposite of the uh, of the bad guy showing how evil he is by like killing one of his own people. You know, yep. this is sort of him showing that that, that he's got kind of a conscience. Yeah. <laughs> so. At said dead guy's house, um, the gang finds Roker and, and and his team with a whole bunch of shotguns. Of course, shooters. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man, Bill Savage all over again. It is. <laughs> so Roker, Roker comes out blazing, and a gang member named Freddie saves Spencer, but of course gets shot himself. Spencer's gang runs under fire, and Roker seems like the guy with the power in the neighborhood now. 
but that gives Spencer a plan. It's, it's time to roll out the old Jason Mendoza special, a whole bunch of Molotov cocktails. Oh, no. Just constant escalation here. Um, things are getting pretty grim. I mean, yeah, straight in. Yeah. Like, And it's not even against rival gangs. This is just in, like intra-Malvern mob fighting, you know? Yeah. They have a plan with some hit and run tactics, and the attack is on. Uh, they they toss some, co- some 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 Molotovs, and Roker takes the bait, coming after them in the in, in a used station wagon. But it was all a trick, and Spencer and his boys descend on Roker's base. He tricks two of the uh, of, of of the kids into blasting giant holes in each other with uh, w- with shotguns, which is again pretty graphic to be and honest. It's, it is graphic, yeah, and it's a classic move, isn't it? That, uh, you know, creeping around a dark house, he throws himself to the floor, and the two guys oh, yeah. take each other out in uh, yeah graphic and gory detail. <laughs> yeah, wasn't there know, a wasn't there a panel in two thousand AD where? Um, Kevin O'Neill had to sort of like white out the stuff coming out the back of somebody when they were I'm, shot or stabbed. Yeah, I, 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 I think classically it was when a nemesis stabbed uh, Magna. That's he, it, his, yeah. His second wife, like with the sword sinister, you know, and like, you know, it's this gigantic sword and he stabs her and it just doesn't come out the end. So it's like it's got a collapsible blade, you know. None of that in action, you know. Here no, we see. No. <laughs> I mean, I mean, action is why you can't do that in 2018. You know? This is where they learnt their lessons, unfortunately. Abs- yeah, yeah. Ab- yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, blah, blah, blah. yeah. So uh, so ne- so um, then afterwards, uh, uh, my favorite character Benny d- disarms folks with with his baseball bat, which is pretty great. And now they just have to wait with their shotguns for Roker to come back. But those bikers from last time have also heard the shots, and they've got to go check it out. Oh no, they're back. Yeah. Oh geez, now it's a, a war on two fronts. So Spencer organizes the guns and plans to get get the drop on Roker. When the bikers sneak up on the gun house, they um, quietly take out the, the kids on guard and then get the drop on the gang. As they hold our buddies at gunpoint, Roker also arrives back at the house, and the bikers are distracted. So Spencer kind of jumps into actions. He knocks over the gun table, which pretty awesomely causes one of the bikers to shoot their own faces off with uh, with the shotgun. No. And then Benny bats the other. Uh, uh, just a lot of you know solid uh, 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 house fighting here. The uh, the gang escapes as the injured biker chains the heck out of Roker and his sidekick. And the uh, the the Marvel the uh, the Malvern Road Road Mob uh, makes their way back to their safe house as bikers arrive at the gun house. Um, the Malvern Road Mob base is the is the local secondary school, uh, which is like I feel like that's a very like I don't know. I'm just basing on 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 this one book that I read also about all the adults dying where they fortified a high school and stuff. And I really remember reading that book as a kid and all the other kids like um in my grade were also like you know we we wrote very detailed plans about how we'd fortify our uh, elementary school as a as a fortress as well it's a big uh big, big big moment for 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 young conrad oh right <laughs> fortifying your school yeah yeah that like, okay. like that's where we're gonna stand you know um and we're gonna get the shotguns and the bike chains <laughs> well i mean we're in america so oh, you know, yeah, those true, are yes, those are yeah. much more plentiful you know yeah. um so um, so they, they've only managed to escape with two guns and they're low on ammo. And, uh, Spencer's was like, all right, like, like that was rough, but hopefully things will go cool down for a while, but nope, because now Roker's just arrived back at the base and the bikers got all the guns and they've, and he's led them straight to the school. They're surrounded. 
And Uh-oh. now they're going to get massacred. Oh, geez. So next time on Kids Rule OK, survival gets tougher for the Malvern Road mob. <sighs> well, it's off to a terrific start. There's certainly no shortage of action and violence. Um, as you say, particularly the gruesome of the the, uh, the biker taking both barrels of his own shotgun in his face. Yeah. Uh, uh, as Spencer says, one in the eye for you, mate. So there's a, there's a <laughs> Bill Savage line, if ever we yeah. heard one. Uh, and Mike White's art is uh, is pretty compelling, actually. It's, you know, I think there's some ropey art in action, but Mike White's is great. Uh, so, yeah. Interesting yeah, start. I mean, of course, uh, it's a strip that's going to cause all sorts of problems. And I think you're going to get... Another four issues after these three, I, I think. think I, I believe three. I think thirty six is when thirty six, yeah, is is when they they drop the boom on. So yeah, it's um yeah it's 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 really interesting. Like I I I really like how, how, how they just ratcheted things up right away. Like there's been all right. Here's a situation. Let's get going. You know, you could have a lot of just exposition and stuff, but they've really just just skipped the uh, the uh, shock of the end of the world. It just gotten right into the Mad Max part of the world where gangs start killing each other and stuff yes absolutely uh, apocalyptic uh, punk gangs roaming in the streets uh with the old ultra violence yeah such a uh, such a late 70s early 80s of the end of the month. yeah absolutely and fear of violent kids as well which of course yeah. uh feeds into the moral panic well yeah well it, it started early on in the run of action but it's going to come back with a vengeance this month yeah these days i just shake my fist and sort of that's it i'm not <laughs> Not really worried about them, about them, like you know, about these teenagers actually doing anything like that. That would take that society. It's mostly just that they that they're posting on Instagram or something like that. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but speaking of uh, people doing it for the gram, it's story two, Dredger. Uh, the hard man of action. I get, like Dredger's been the real revelation about action for me. <laughs> like he's the one I've never heard about, but it's super fun. You know, obviously, like like you said with with, with movies, clearly uh, a a dirty hairy clone, just you know, often often looking like Clint Eastwood, definitely with like a killer magnum stuff that. Yes, it does, doesn't it? He's got that dirty Harry feel to him. And again, you know, I've just hinted it, but our fascination with these sort of no-nonsense violent cops uh, played into all sorts of societies, sort of um, almost right-wing feelings about this sort of stuff and crime being out of control. But then you get something like Dredger, <laughs> no, there's well, Dred- the solution. Yeah, I mean... I love a cop on the edge, you know, that they don't they, they don't follow regulations, but by God, they get results, you know. Yeah. Um, although, like, somehow it's even crazier to have a rogue CIA agent or, you know, whatever, DI, DI6, DI6 agents. Yeah. Yeah. Where they're where, where even a lawful one like Breed isn't really bound by the society, you know, it's, it's, it's next level, you know. Yeah, it's great. And and speaking of which, really, I mean, we open with the female newscaster here letting us know that masked gunmen have hijacked a train in Holland and have taken a British scientist hostage. The reporters say that the uh, that the the hostage takers are from the PLO, but we look inside the train and it's dredge up. <laughs> What's he up to? This is a real like Three Stooges kind of situation, like mistaken identity or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, um, it's Dredger and Breed, and they're using a combination of fake accents and ski masks to pretend to be Middle Eastern. So this whole thing is just a false flag. Um, it is. Like, like literally. You know. it's, it's a British false flag operation in Holland. Oh, shake my fist. Uh, yeah. you know, um, this scientist apparently has uh, developed a gas called Cyber Soak. So 
cyclomatic ether, which is a powerful hallucinogen, and he's taking it to the Russians. Or actually, there's a pretty funny part where he tries to sound altruistic and says, oh, no, I'm, uh, no one should have a gas this powerful. I'm going to destroy it. And Dredger's like, well, how come you got these plane tickets and all this Russian money? He's like, bah, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> tickets just, to Leningrad. Giving it to the Reds. Oh, geez. Um. So, you know, Dredger has had enough of this guy, and, and in standard Dredger, for, uh, 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 in standard Dredger plan, just proceeds to torture him, in this case, by giving him a dose of his own gas. <laughs> Soon the doctor's seeing giant deadly spiders everywhere, and Dredger convinces him the only way to keep them off is to tell them the recipe for the gas. It works, and they, like, you know, have to write down, like, the, uh, the, the, the baking instructions for... This gas, you got to pass it over hot barium. That's very important. Um, Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, that's a key part that's of most... That's a key part uh, of making yeah. these deadly hallucinogenic uh, torture gases. <laughs> of of yeah. course, yeah. Um, everybody knows that. But um, so this seems to work. And, and so once they get their information, the boys start negotiating to get away from this hostage situation. When the doctor freaks out because of the spiders and stuff, of course, he takes control of the train and crashes the thing into the station. Um, and he's he's killed in the uh, in the in, in the crash. So Dredger thinks fast. He puts one of their ski masks on the corpse and says, "All right, we'll get out of here. Um, you know, the doctor will will be one of us, and then uh, you and me will just escape. Um, to, you know, in, in hostage style." And Breed's like, "Oh, but I don't look like the doctor. Like, no one will buy that." And Dredger, of course, says, "No one'll notice because of all the blood," and just punches him right in the face. <laughs> so that <laughs> okay, partner. Yeah, exactly. So that uh, while Dredger wears a ski mask, they walk off with Breed wearing a crimson mask. Yes, <laughs> for Queen and Country Breed. <laughs> They've really, you know, this is a, this is a weird relationship these guys have. It's very strange, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> they head out because, like, you know. Like, I'm sort of okay with this just because I also know that that, that previously uh, Breed has uh, framed Dredger for murder so that he would stay being a spy for DI6 and stuff. Like, it, you know, it's coming on both ends, you know? Yeah. <laughs> they head out to a speedboat, blowing it up as they go, and then get picked up by a British Navy ship. The Brits have the recipe for fear gas, and they've managed to one-up those no-good Dutch... Ugh! Poor old Dutch. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, like, just, like you know, th- this international incident really looks good for us, too. So good show, guys. You know? Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. Yeah. And then the newsreader finishes off by saying, in future, any incidents in Holland will be handled by the British Secret Service. Yeah. These false flags, they're tough, you know? Terrible, yeah. <laughs> Dredger. Dredger! <laughs> so Dredger and Breed are now in the Andes trying to keep a, a list of guerrilla locations there. Um, fr- uh, away from the commies. Dredger's in no hurry, though, so he heads to the cantina, to local cantina, where he's promptly kicked in the face. Ponda Baba and Dr. Cornelius e- uh, Evans and didn't even get a chance to introduce themselves. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> they're a deep, deep cut Star Wars reference. Yes, here, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a fight starts to break out, but the fists turn to smiles as the, guy, as the uh, fighters reveal themselves to be a pair of mercenaries, an Australian and an Italian, respectively, and buddies of Dredger from way back. So this old thing that hard-nosed buddies introduce themselves by punching each other, but then one of them's got a flick knife, the other's got a broken bottle. It seems as greasy rituals very quickly, yes. Yeah, that's right. I much prefer the one from, from, from Commando where you kind of give each other a high five and then it turns into an arm wrestling An contest. arm wrestle, yeah, that's right. In terms yeah. of just mercenary greetings, you know. 
yeah, with uh, Carl Weathers. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, so key. Predator. <laughs> yeah, too, yeah, CIA got you pushing too many pencils. That's excellent. <laughs> um, um, anyway, these guys basically reveal that they're working for the Cubans and that the list that Bree and Dredger are looking for is being made by them. But, you know, Dredger, of course, being Dredger, says there's no friends when bullets start flowing. And a few days later, the agents have set up an ambush. They basically just blow up a mountainside onto the, onto the mercenaries. And it's great because these guys are, are 100% stereotypes. Like the, um, the Australian just starts – like the Australian is both wearing a Foster's t-shirt and just constantly le- uh, drops Australia-themed, like, uh, swear, uh, uh, cusses and, uh, and curses, you know? And fair dinkums. <laughs> yeah, like, buy the, buy my dingoes, you know, <laughs> things like that. It's that meanwhile... pun- it's blooming dredger in his poncy cobber. <laughs> <laughs> and meanwhile, the Italians are sort of like, hey, I cut you with a knife. Um, oh no! Racial, 1970s racial stereotype. You know, oh, it's always, always yeah. a cloud ab- ab- about to strike, and yes. the 80s too. Like it's, you know, yeah, like I'm afraid so. We're still not free of it, you know. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, the the Italian sort of sneaks around and, and attacks our guy. Bree takes a knife in the shoulder. Um, then they, but they manage to capture him and use the Italian to flush out the Australian. And soon, Breed and Dredger have the papers. They sort of uh. go go to leave, and Breed of course because he's constantly like uh making fun of dredger like says oh like you betrayed your friends to get to like get this um get this information when suddenly the mercenaries show up again all like bandaged and hurt and dredger gives them the list and and tells them to sell it back to the brits for uh twenty thousand dollars instead of to the uh to the cubans and they'll just report this mission was a failure. Uh, it's a complicated game Dredger was playing in this one, wasn't it? I mean, you know, like, no one knows Spycraft like Dredger. He no, will, um, you can play both sides against each other. That's his move. You know, I uh, guess that's just what, what what friends for. They allow mercenaries to profit off of the Cold War, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and poor old Breed has to take another one for the team, this time in the shoulder. Does yeah. Space Spinner 2000 know anything about shoulder injuries? Yeah, <laughs> of course. <laughs> you know, like, we've done Rage, buddy. That's like yes. ground zero for shoulder for shoulder injuries you have shouldered your share of the work there haven't you oh the no. yeah. <laughs> yeah you know it's getting real clavicle out there but um <laughs> but uh yeah well and 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 plus i'll also say just the shoulders where you shoot somebody where you want to shoot them but you, you don't want to do lasting damage i mean that's been true since the dawn of movies i think so it's just yes. very very important to get hit in the shoulder instead of vital places like the arm or the hand you know yeah <laughs> So finally for Dredger, a bald guy in a Russian mental hospital near Riga is being dragged into a room where they shoot a laser into his skull. Oh no. Yeah, really just the worst place to get a laser shot into, honestly. Yeah. Um, this this laser shot's destroyed his resistance centers and soon they'll destroy the ones for loyalty and aggression as well. Two weeks later, Breed and Dredger take custody of Rosa Mazny, a Russian spy recently who was recently captured but refuses to talk. The agents are there to take her back to Russia. And like this like character like Silent Rosa, this does feel very like I don't know. It feels very spy stuff to me or something yes. like that. Like a uh or like Rosenbergs or something almost like a uh you know, just a, a big front page headline about a spy that's been found and captures the public's imagination. You know? Yeah. 
And, right. and she gets she gets at least one panel where she's quite uh, quite the good-looking Russian spy. Absolutely, uh, yes. It's a bit like that Roger Moore Bond one where Fiona Fullerton turned up as a Russian spy. And, of course, <laughs> they all know each other instantly, don't they? And I think they ended up in the hot tub. But they're not not this time for Dredger. Well, I mean, that's not how Dredger operates, you know. Not at all, no. Like, of, he's way, way more to... For, um, his move, as we've seen before, is much more what happens here where they... Uh, infiltrate Russia in a fishing trawler and then he punches Rose in the face to knock her out so they can sort of carry her around. Typical um, dredger. I mean, he's done that at least, like, I, th- I think the only time he hasn't done violence on uh, a female character in this comic is the, is when the female character turned out to be another agent who, like, judo-throwed him instead. Who, who right. judo-throwed him, you know? <laughs> I mean, this is very, like, I, I, I feel like this is very, um... Like, this is a comic for eight-year-old boys who are still very, um, you know, girls gross in a yeah. lot of ways. Um, so they uh, the they head in onto the mainland. They use a knocked-out Rosa just lying in the middle of the road to stop a, a nearby ambulance, which, of course, they then knock the drivers out of and put on their clothes. Oldest trick in the book style to infiltrate this um, hospital. Um, it's a classic one, isn't it? Like, you know. How I, many like, times have we seen this? I mean, it, it's literally like the oldest trick. I, I always call it the oldest trick in the book because it really is just yeah. the, um, oh, like, luckily all these guys' clothes fit, you know. Um, it's like, you know, only way to get into places, just knock people out, put on their clothes, all that stuff. Um, they they get in. Uh, Dredger takes out a doctor with a knife. And, and when Rosa comes to, she sees the bald man from the start of the comic. It's her missing husband, Jorge. Oh, no. Uh, Apparently, though, because he had already infiltrated to Russia, he was being critical of the regime, and now he's got a messed up brain and has gone into full, uh, please kill me mode. And she does. Yeah, she obliges shooting him, and the trio escape. I'm not sure where she got the gun, for the record, but <laughs> don't worry about it too much. Um they escape. They're not, you know, of course, they, they don't look back because they're cool when the hospital explodes behind them. Um, yeah, of course. And- yeah. Dredger's left a little ticking package. That's his move. Yep. Also, um, back on the boat, Rosa agrees to defect to the West. Uh, the horror of her husband's fate was enough to convince her. Again, Dredger playing a long game. Uh, yeah. The, you know, these spy stories, they're very, they can be very complicated. Especially yes. in, like, very complicated four, three pages, you know, <laughs> where it's just like, we, like they show up and they're halfway through the scheme, you know. Yeah, uh, I'm sure. I'm not sure which page of the uh, Spycraft book that is, but there you go. Okay, I mean, oh, if, absolutely. You know, if only he'd had some other way of uh, getting the information from a, like a, a fear gas or say or something like that. But <laughs> that, I, maybe that permanently destroys you or something. Ah, but, uh, right. Yeah, he wants to keep <laughs> the lovely Rosa on their side. She's a useful right. asset. And they definitely couldn't find like photographs of this guy as opposed to actually having to physically take her into Russia. But anyway, yeah. um, next time, another cold-blooded story with the deadly DI-6 men. Dredger will return. I love Dredger. He's just so ridiculous and everything's over the top and like incredibly violent and stuff. It's just the like, like, like um, not James Bond, but, 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 but very off-brand James Bond that's trying to be salacious because they can't afford the, uh, the exotic loca- locales, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, he's he is Dirty Harry, sort of crossed with Harry Palmer. Do you know the Michael Caine or Dan and Dirty British spy? Ah, okay. Yeah, I, and the to- and the torture sequence for some reason reminded me of the uh, when Michael Caine gets tortured in the Ipcris file. Uh, mm. So yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, when we get to the covers, we'll talk a little bit about the artwork because I I do have a slight problem of of what Dredger looks like. We'll come back to that perhaps. It does it does very wild. It does yes. vary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, there is there are more than it's not just uh, one constant artist really. yeah it's true um yeah and speaking of a cold-blooded adventure it's story three death game 1999 what would happen if you crossed rollerball with a pinball game on ice <laughs> there's so much it's such a high concept you know? with with, <laughs> with convicted criminals as well it's uh, it's a reality tv format just waiting to absolutely yeah i think the only the only thing we're missing is the frictionless ball otherwise this thing's ready to go yeah um so writer tom tully artist uh, costa of the gialetti agents and we're in the middle of a game here it's the edgeville executioners versus the carson city killers it's the bloodiest spinball game ever as the crowd calls for blood with their kojak themed signs who kills you baby <laughs> tell me is here yep <laughs> The killers are on offense with um, most of the team dead or incapacitated. So it's time to just uh, Joe Taggart, our hero, and two other guys, Yo-Yo and Polanski, to win the game. It's kill or be killed, as always. Executioners are playing tough while the killers... And while the killers are doing damage, the executioners are bringing in replacements to basically just undo their, you know, undo their efforts. So they take out two guys, but two guys come back to take their place. Straight away, the subs come in. It's ridiculous. Um, up in the owner's box, Warden Smales, though, is fine with losing a game because if it kills Joe Taggart, that's fine. That, you know, that's what he's trying to do. He's that's been trying his, to kill Joe. That's his trying, main agenda. Yeah, he's been trying to kill Joe Taggart basically since he made him, since he forced him to be captain of the team. It's real oh. complicated. <laughs> But anyway, um, meanwhile, Taggart is riding the walls of the uh, of the Spinball Arena with his sweet motorbike with the nails in the wheels. No one's ever thought to do that. Oh, he's an innovator. And they're scoring a bunch of points, but Polanski takes his spinball to the shoulder, and now he's out too. You see Joe, like, covering Polanski as he gets to leave the field safely. And it's finally just Joe and Yo-Yo on the ice with 100,000 points to go. Oh no, what can possibly win it? Yeah, they use a dummy play and Joe hits a deflector plate. He scores 50,000 points in one shot and he's qualified for a death run. Uh-oh. Yeah, we saw these just at the start of Spinball, of, of a Death Game 1999. It's a solo gauntlet that few survive. Yo-Yo offers to take it, but Joe's ready to go. If he makes it, he'll move, He'll win the game and move the killers to the top of the league and maybe even earn them all their freedom. But before that, he's got to get through the whole Executioner's team. Let's roll. <laughs> Real good. Uh, so Taggart uh, goes on his death run, gets the ball at top speed, loads it into his bike cannon. The Executioners are super eager, and Taggart, but, but Taggart dodges them, causing them to attack each other. Another one of these um, dodging out of the way, so two guys take each other out kind of moves. Classic. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, Joe only gets one shot on his death run, and his crippled teammates cheer him on. So he so he can't like shoot the ball and just use it to take out um, opponents. He's got to take them out in another in other ways. Another opponent throws his helmet um, on the ice to trip up Taggart's uh, motorcycle, but instead he just starts to skid and takes out more executioners with the spiked wheels of his bike. 
Ugh. Real good. Only two defenders remain between Joe and Victory. He throws the empty helmet back at the guy who threw it in the first place. And then Judo throws another defender that tries to jump on his back. Um, he throws him into a pin, which electrocutes him. It's awesome. Um, Joe is free in a way, and he scores on the black pin. The killers win. That's it. He's got the 50,000. Yeah, Joe has completed the first death run in seven years, and even the partisan crowd is cheering him. Joe heads out as a victory lap around the flaming wreckage of all the other players and stuff, and this part feels very end of rollerball. Like, even more than everything else in this thing, this is very rollerball. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, just um, uh, um, along those, or sorry, Joe calls out Warden Smales, you know, one more match and the team goes free. They're pretty stoked, but in another rollerball move, um, the uh, a man in black named Schroeder from the local government is not pleased. And again, this is like literally the plot of rollerball where they don't want heroes in spinball. They just want people to go in and die to, you know, as bread and circus keep the public distracted. And it was Jonathan E, wasn't it? The James Kahn character. Yes. Yes. And they st- when the crowd start chanting his name and all the owners get very uh, disproving looks yeah as you yeah because it's very because like because that's the plot of rollerball too is he sort of learn like J- J- james Kahn kind of learns that they aren't like they, they they don't want individual heroes they want like just sort of death and destruction to keep people distracted which is you know again again uh, uh, you know bread and circuses like everything that that a, a college freshman has told you about sports basically um, yeah or in my opinion, I guess. But anyway, um, Joe Taggart must die. <laughs> oh, no. It's like, still. I feel like he's yeah. been on Warden Smale's kill list like for a long time. <laughs> Complicated insurance scam, maybe? I think so. Although it'd be uh, difficult t- to get life insurance for death game, I think. Oh, yes. For absolutely, spinball. yeah. yeah. Plus, you're in prison anyway. It's a whole yeah. thing, I guess. Um, Taggart enjoys the adulation of, um, of the crowd after the game, but he's also, you know, remembers to be grateful to his injured teammates as well. One more game, and they're freed men. So there is kind of an inch. There is like a weird part where 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 Schroeder once again, like emphasizes that 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 Taggart must be killed, and like it's it's so weird because like we've said, Smales has wanted Taggart dead for a long time. Like, yeah, like the so that that they're. Almost playing this like Smales wouldn't want that, but like he's been, he's tried to kill him several times. He like, you know, brought back a cyborg guy to do it, you know? Um, yes. But, but anyway, a prototype uh, Artie Gruber. Yeah, well, uh, a, a combination of Artie Gruber and just because it's Joe versus Rico, sort of an early yeah. version of, of the Dread Dyad oh, as well. That's right, yes. <laughs> but so. Basically, Smales says, um, like, you know, tells the guards that, that it's finally really time to kill um, Joe. Just make sure it looks like an accident because otherwise it'll cause a big riot. Yep. Back in the yard, Joe goes to blow off with a whole different game. Football. Whoa. Now we're getting really dangerous. Yeah. Um, but and, and the game quickly gets out of hand as the ball hits a guard in the face. But the guard actually walked into the ball and got hit by it because now he can put Joe into the madhouse, which I guess is where the uh, where, where the craziest inmates go. A lot of solitary confinement in this episode. Actually. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> like it's funny how these themes show up. But it should be solitary. But once um, Taggart is put in his cell, the guards start opening doors, letting out the evil Charlie Cyclops. Oh no! Looking to kill someone, anyone, even Joe Taggart, and there's four others just like him let out as well. So Conrad, it's it's rollerball on ice with uh, convicted criminals and uh, zombies. Oh yeah, <laughs> zombies as well. 
I mean, like, 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 Rico was already pretty zombie-like, I think. Right. Just as, as sort of a murder machine, you know, already Gruber, uh, a murder machine. But yeah, like, wow. The one thing I, I really like about, about Death Game 1999 is that there are these cyborgs and tech things, but they really don't work very well. So it, it does feel like what an attempted cybernetics in 1999 would have felt like an R1999 would have felt like. But I mean, this feels, this is one of those things that feels very par for the course for action almost, where if they can't just have simple violence, they will just start adding layers to a story. Like this feels very Blackjack to me, where the second, where, you know, the first, like the, the, like part one of Blackjack was just sort of a boxer going blind. And part two of Blackjack has like Kung Fu and gangsters and a recording contract and going on tour with that and like record company intrigue and stuff. It's just like, all right, like we just got to, let's just keep adding things and it'll keep this story interesting. You know, to the point where you kind of look back on it and it's like, whoa, like this used to just be about the spinball, man. Now there's like, yeah. you know, murder robo zombies. Exactly. You know? Yes. <laughs> Things have got out of hand. Absolutely. In this speak- deadly killing game of the future. <laughs> Who'd have thought, you know? <laughs> But 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 speaking of things getting out of hand and or stories just sticking to a very pure concept, it's story for Hookjaw. Uh, the absolute classic, the runaway Absol- success of action. Absolutely, yeah. The, the 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 great star of action writer Pat Mills, artist Roman Sola. All right, we're we're right at the end of this story, and it's ridiculous. Our hero Rick Mason is out in the water with Hookjaw on his own. Um, and the shark's fighting like crazy. Mason's axe blows have done nothing to hurt the shark. Mason's buddy's buddy Sharky tries to throw him a line to drag him in, but Hookjaw's on the hunt. He comes up behind Mason and bites and bites his left foot. Oh no. Oh, no. It's and terrible. It, yeah, and in a rare hookjaw bite that doesn't just sever the limb, in this case he just bites it lightly and just drags Rick underwater. To, and uh, and and Rick himself is forced to hatchet his own le- his own foot off rather than than drown underwater. Gosh, like Saw the movie about twenty five years earlier. Definitely, or like yeah. like, like a like, like a fox in a in a trap. Um, yeah, yeah, bad times. <laughs> the shark bites him again, and Rich like this time in the face, and Richard is, and uh, and uh, Mason is blinded by his own blood. He's then speared by Hookjaw's hook and thrown clear. Oh, he's just losing a ton of blood. Mason knows he's a dead man and tells Sharky to avenge his death. Uh, nearly done for, G- uh, Mason tries to do as much damage as he can. As, as Hookjaw approaches him, he grabs a fistful of the monster's eye. And this is one of those parts where, um, you know, the, the increased scale of, of, of Hookjaw really plays against him because his eye is the size of a, like, like a dinner plate. It <laughs> so, is, yes. <laughs> He's going to get his, like, his whole fist in there. It's crazy. Um, but Hookjaw doesn't need eyes to kill, and he bites off Mason's entire body. He's just ahead. Uh, and he washes up on shore just ahead. Uh. And Sharky grabs it and brandishes it at Dr. Kelter and his goods. Holy crap. Oh, I like I, I like this because normally you'd say that uh, that a hook job bites Mason's head off, but because just the head remains, he's bitten his body off. You know? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, listen, even let's not forget that while this is happening, the island that we're on is being quickly destroyed by earthquakes. Of course, yeah, there's a volcano eruption. There's all sorts of stuff happening on this holiday island. In the greatest opening panel of all time, Sharky is just carrying Rick Mason's head around and yelling at Dr. Gelter. Oh, my God. Um, a bunch of folks pile into a hovercraft as the shark sharks circle below things are okay for a second when suddenly the uh, hovercraft runs out of gas and the passengers panic hookjaw of course strikes and the page just goes solid red as everyone's eaten i love these panels a completely red panel yeah it's just so it's so crazy like you know they they do these from time to time on hookjaw and it's it's a it I think it's an amazing use of color in these in these stories. Just like and I you're going to draw blood strains, just all blood. I know we talked about this before, but people narrating their own deaths as they're being. Oh yes, yeah. I he's tearing me apart. Yes, listen. No one's had their torso like no one's had their legs bitten off and talked about it more than the victims of Hookjaw. Yeah, for sure. Um, so um, on, on shore, Doctor Gelder decides to colonize this island one last time, leading the tourists to the local native village and stealing their boats. The natives protest and are shot for their trouble, and Sharky just tells uh, tells them just go aboard the. There's also a, a freighter that's pulled up nearby and they see people um, like the island exploding and they lower boats to try to save the flying people. And the people's lack of patience in getting aboard the, this freighter um, causes some folks to fall in the water, which draws the sharks. Here's more sharks. Suddenly, Hookjaw is upon them, destroying boats and eating people whole. Alone in the final lifeboat, Dr. Gelder has a rifle and he aims it at Hookjaw, preparing to shoot the beast. In our final issue, Gelder takes his shot. He hits Hookjaw in the face, but that doesn't stop him in the slightest. No, nope. blast got him in the head, but didn't stop him. No, he, you know, Hookjaw doesn't like. He doesn't have a brain like that. He's just a uh, an animated murder machine. Absolutely. Uh, so Gelder's in the water, and um, but but the uh, blood that's pouring from this wound on Hookjaw's face does call other sharks to attack him. A tiger shark takes a bite of the beast, but Hookjaw just slashes him from stem to stern with his hook and then is able to escape as the other sharks attack the tiger shark. And the panel turns red again, another one. Oh, yes. Lovely. You, know, you, you got to do it just for these, uh, for these feeding frenzies, of course. Yeah. Dr. Gelder's pulled aboard the steamer and says he's the only survivor of the island, so they have to go. But the ship's captain sees that the island natives are floating out on a raft, also trying to escape. And they're actually being pretty cool because they're like uh, harpooning sharks as they go and stuff. They're very, like, taking care of themselves a little bit here, which I think is really awesome. The Captain Van Cleef, probably a Lee Van Cleef reference, um, lets them board and Sharky gets into a fight with Dr. Gelder. He calls on the shark god Natuako to avenge the souls of the dead, including Rick Mason. And he harpoons Gelder straight in the chest as the whole island explodes to pieces. Non-stop action. Definitely. There's a lot going on here. Well, you know, it's the end of the story, so you got to get it all in at once, I guess. Um, this causes a tsunami, which carries the massive uh, body of Hookjaw aboard the deck of the ship. Uh, Sharky tries to kill Hookjaw, but instead gets a face full of Hook. And in the end, only six people survive the storm, including Sharky, stuck on, sh- on ship wreckage. They might survive if they can avoid the rest of the sharks, but Hookjaw is headed to new places and new adventures. It's just uh, an apocalyptic murder machine, as you say. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the second time that Hookjaw has left the area that he's been hunting and completely destroyed and with very few survivors. Blimey, it's 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 all out, and of course he gets the color pages, and uh, as you say, it uses it so beautifully with those red panels. Absolutely, uh, and it is some of the best artwork as well. I've been looking at it in the the uh, the Titan hardback I've got. So yeah, lovely, oh, nice on oh, nice paper. Yeah. Definitely, yeah. Uh, you know, because he always ends things so like apocalyptically, it's a good show that they, that that um, everything gets censored before he finishes his next story because that's in England. You know, that's bad times. Oh, no. Who knows what would happen? Yes. <laughs> uh, but but speaking of apocalyptic moments, let's go to non stories, covers, editorial, action man, and money man. Oh no! Okay. Yeah, this section not. The- not the throwaway can often be in other episodes. But first, let's go um, with um, with a issue 31. What's got two cold eyes, two tough fists, one magnum revolver, and the hitting power of six men? It's Treasure! Yep. <laughs> and there he is, six of him on the cover. And this is where, partly, I've got my issue with what does Dredger look like? Because he, you know... <laughs> <laughs> his facial appearance he, he doesn't quite get that sort of distinctive comic likeness where you say oh yeah that's what dredger looks like hmm. um and then because i don't know about you conrad but the way this cover is colored uh and that they've colored the inside of his jacket in black as well hmm. it does look like a rather overweight disco uh lothario doesn't <laughs> it <laughs> yeah i mean he, he's he's very ready to to cut a move in saturday night fever for sure he is yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, it's but, a, it, it, I mean, Dredger, I feel more than anybody else, actually, Dredger really does a lot, but they also do a lot of close ups of him. So, yeah, um, like I know, um, doing the, 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 the action summer special, Dredger just straight up looks like Clay. You can really change a lot depending on, on, on who the artist is. Yeah, yes, make him look like Clint Eastwood, make him look like Dirty Harry, that'll do. Yeah, uh, I feel like it, yeah. you know, and just how, how literally you take that seems to depend on the artist, you yeah. Know? Um, <laughs> So inside, there's a letter from a kid with a toy parachute that keeps jumping off off the roof, um, which doesn't seem wise to me just in terms of what's going to happen. Because I know in America, at least, toys have been banned for that very kind of thing. Like some kid with like a toy plane jumping off off a roof, yes. like breaking their leg and just being like, all right, that, that toy's off the market, you know? Yeah, um, in, in, in view of the storm to come, it seems inadvised to print that, doesn't it? Indeed, yeah. There's also uh, letters about solutions for nail biting, brothers throwing stones, a, 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 a riddle with like a word a word search thing, um, corrections about some recent football tips, and a joke about a guy forgetting a toilet paper, possibly on, or sorry, uh, there's a comic where this character has forgotten toilet paper because he's like apparently on his way to an event, he's got like a pin and a noisemaker and stuff. Yeah, that's a football. He's going to football. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a football rattle, and he's got his um, his rosette and scarf. That's classic old style depiction of a football fan. All right, excellent. Yeah, thank you. That was one that I needed. Um, um, some 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 decoding for <laughs> mid issue. There's a no wall section, and uh, Mach One inspiration. Lee Majors is twit of the week. We also see Action Mouse stretching out his arm because he's bad at bowling. And then there's a close-up picture of what clearly appears to be scissors. Um, Yep. There's also an ad for the Action Annual, which I don't know, like... I've done like I I'm definitely planning to do the uh, the summer special. I wasn't I wasn't clear on whether this annual was from pre-ban or post-ban. Um, so I'm, I might take a look at it and, and and see if we'll talk about that one as well. 
Yeah, I guess that's probably pre-ban if it's out now, I guess, yeah, isn't it? I, yeah, I think so. It's, it's sort of an interesting thing, like, you know, because, like, you know, action continues both in sort of its censored form for, like, you know, 60 more issues, and then there's annuals and specials, of course, like, long after the title is, is canceled, much like they did for Star-Lord and the Tornado, I think. Um, but, you know, those ones seem inessential to me just because they're sort of from the post from the post-ban era. But this one might not be, so i got to check it out. Um there's also a uh, a a ma- uh, Manny action. Um, these uh, Rube Goldberg style uh, 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 devices suggested by readers. This one is an action ornithopter, which is of course a plane with a wings flap, and it's got uh, like booster rockets, sp- a spring-based air um, undercarriage with strings with like springs with shoes attached to them, and the flapping wings are powered by a very tired elephant. Of course. Definitely. I think you've had this before. We call them Heath Robinson type design. Oh, interesting. Yeah. For me, they're always um, just like Rube, Rube, Rube Goldberg, Goldberg yeah. um, things. Although the art styles in these ones are always very, to me, seem very similar to a Don Martin, the artist that did a lot of uh, Mad Magazine um, things. Yes. Yeah, that's true. And then the, uh, the the back page of action this time is an introduction to basketball with some very eight, uh, mid-70s style um, opinions about stance and passings from my limited bas- basketball knowledge of the modern era. Um, these these look so generic, these basketball bits. They look like I've seen them, I don't know, on sort of like posters in school gyms and things like that, you know? Absolutely. I mean, this section feels very cribbed from existing literature because they often are these, like I, um, last episode they had one for gymnastics that were a lot of like step-by-step guys doing like a cartwheel or something yeah which is, but it's very funny because the steps like for you know the majority of the steps your feet are off the ground so it seems very difficult to sort of you know emulate them but um yeah this this feels very much like um just from a book that's called an introduction to basketball you know maybe with the uh with the serial numbers uh shaved off yeah they they've they've borrowed this from somewhere else clearly as you say yeah um, but with that, let's get to the big news with issue 32. Aggro is a way of life in kids rule. Okay. Oh my goodness, Conrad. What are we going to say about this? I mean, it's hard to, you know, this is what, for me, this is what I knew about action before I started reading it. And I, and, and, and I think a lot of people too, you know, this is the image they show. It's the famous action cover drawn by Carlos Escara, um showing a chain wielding youth standing over a prone adult in blue with a policeman's helmet lying nearby. You know, it's this cover that of course um, was... Um, assumed that this car- that, that this uh, that this man was a policeman being attacked would cause a lot of controversy. Like, oh, they're telling kids to attack policemen in this seven penny nightmare, uh, and you know would eventually lead to uh, action's temporary cancellation and censorship of of the comic. And uh, you probably know that you've probably saw this story that Pat Mills tells in the Future Shock documentary about 2000 AD that uh, the character on the floor was not meant to be coloured in blue. Uh, and I, I think you probably know Ben Cullis from the 1977 to 2000 AD Facebook group. Of course. Um, he confirmed this story at the 2000 AD 40th anniversary bash because he spoke to... Carlos and Pat Mills and Steve McManus about this cover. Oh wow! While he was getting them to sign the actual comic, <laughs> um, and they all confirmed that it would just it went off to the printers uncolored, and that somebody in the printing department made a decision because it's the same blue sort of throughout the color uh, throughout the cover they've chosen, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's 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 very much one of these situations where uh, I, I mean. A, 
especially in action, you you get a sense that they're sort of trying to cut corners and sort of just use the same colors over and over again. A lot of uh, a lot of action covers have like block coloring, where it's just sort of like all oh, this stuff's green or something like that. Yeah, uh, but here it is, and as you say, it becomes the most infamous cover uh possibly in british comics history and certainly when anybody ever mentions action this is the image that you'll see um and it caused so much trouble and then you know um as we know a few weeks after this the publisher john sanders is on british television defending the comic from an attack from a um uh, a presenter and sports broadcaster called Frank Boff who tore into him about this <laughs> um and I, we don't know if this is true or not but he was supposed to have torn up a co- copy of the comic on TV oh my uh, gosh uh, but that's, that's awesome that's good, sadly, theater, good that, show theatrics. yeah, yeah. That, 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 that there's no film of this survives unfortunately <sighs> so it's sort of gone into law um that you know they'd had this very sort of like before they started filming before they the, the red light came on that Frank Boff had been very friendly and polite and then as soon as the red light goes on he just tore into John Sanders about the comic um and so yeah this issue and this cover and then we'll we'll get to something else that happens in this issue as well that really mm-hmm. caused a lot of trouble um and aggro as a way of life. We were, I don't know why, again, we were obsessed with violent films. And at school, we were obsessed with this idea, this concept of aggro um, and our fascination in violence, even though, you know, we were all sort of scared of it, really. Right. But, yeah. It's such but, a funny thing. I like, I, it's like, for me, aggro is one of those wor- one of those words that I've never really seen in the wild except in like video games or something. It's always really funny just to kind of see the origins of these things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um I mean you mentioned, you know, like um film novelizations that were passed around at school. That I remember at school we were getting there were books that were passed around with titles like aggro and yob uh, or skinhead um that we were you know they're quite lurid trashy pulp sort of uh, paperbacks um with all sorts of uh sex sure. and ultraviolence in them which is no doubt why we were passing them around oh yeah but yeah i, I th- that that was a little after my time i think but i've i've, I've gone back and read and read some books like that. There's a big series in, in 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 the states called The Executioner. That's a very um oh yes yeah like one of these like in, like like pulpy like here's just a a, a a a novel about sex and violence. We put like five of them out a year. You know, it's like yeah. five hundred of them now. You know, um, and he in, sort of goes on to way. influence The Punisher. I think doesn't he a bit? Oh yes, yeah. I mean just you know as a as a vigilant as a crime fighting you know vigilante he, he he can't help it. I think. Yeah, um, but it's very much this idea. It's such a like I don't know. It feels so strange in 2019. This idea of um, you need of you're a kid and you need lurid thrills, but there's no like YouTube or even like TV shows or movies. So you've got to like read books to get it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We had to pass around books, or you know, people would have to go and get their action. Or 200,000 people a week, or 200,000 kids a week were yeah. getting it. Um, and you know, as well as it saying aggro on the cover above the title, we've got. Um, Dare you watch Death Game 1999? <laughs> Blood flows as Green fights on, and even disemboweled by Hooked. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's so like. Well, I mean, like as we get into the comic, or I want to say also uh, one of my favorite um, end results of um, this action cover is there's a a, a commission Ascara did that that's in the uh, in the Ascara coloring book of. Um, 
of a uh, 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 Judge Dread fatty attacking a uh, uh, Dread, but instead of a chain, he's got a link of sausages. Yes. Um, <laughs> but otherwise, it's a recreation of of this um of this cover, and it's just hilarious. <laughs> Great stuff. But um, you know, like this is one of these things where I don't know, like a couple times in my life, I've seen like I've I've listened or watched like daily um TV shows that are or um radio shows or something that are from like the day before some massive history changing event has taken place and you and everything feels like it's full of a foreboding and like foreshadowing and people aren't aware of it you know yeah i don't know like like it's interesting to like if you ever watch like i watch like a like a news report or like the tonight show from like september 10th 2001 or something like that and just even the most innocuous thing suddenly has like import you know and it's a similar thing like not to uh, um equate those two fully of course but there is a thing in, in this issue of action where we open with um steve mcmahon saying that's been peaceful here this week <laughs> things are sort of like nothing's going on in action you know oh, no <laughs> It's very like, oh, but what's about to happen? You know, whatever. Um, letters in like inside the comic, there's more letters, in- including one of these ne- one of these classic um, like negative comic book letters that are like, oh, these letters are fake because you never print um, mean ones. Like, oh, we printed yours, didn't we? Yeah. Um, there's also uh, at, um, at, at least two 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 girls who read action. A writer needs the prize money for a ransom, and at least one kid loves all the blood. Could you have some vampires in your family? Yeah, says Steve. <laughs> That's excellent. You know, you you can't even really talk about like the, you know. Sorry, it's funny just talking about comic censorship, just because you couldn't say that in um, in American comics, because especially in um, in seventy six, the comics code was so strong that yeah. and really banned elements of of the uh, of the fantastique. Like to the point where like there was an argument about whether Marv Wolfman could use his name in the credits card because it could, it could be taken as a reference to uh, to werewolves. Oh really? Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, that's just a thing I know. Whatever. Um, Mid issue, there's more Noal, a close up of, of what I believe is a corkscrew and big chinned football man Jimmy Hill is Twitter of the week. Yep. Um, meanwhile, Action Mouse goes skiing. He heads for the quick tees and gets a cuppa in the face. Oh, it's a bloody outrage. He forgot the sugar. <laughs> and, British tea joke. Definitely. <laughs> um, and the issue ends with some uh, possible captions for so, you know, film uh, images as they do. And a full page talking about various shots in basketball. Again. Yes. Yeah, very generic. Indeed. Uh Issue 33, Probationer. He was innocent, but the law didn't care. Um, this cover has a dude with an axe, like a huge guy with an axe on it, which doesn't even have anything to do with the Probationer store. Or I guess it does, but whatever. Yes. It's, very, it's a very strange choice and has a very, to me, has a very EC Comics vibe to it, actually. Which, again, is just sort of more like thinking about comic censorship stuff. <laughs> and do you think that's Carlos again on this cover? Could be. It's could hard. be hard to tell. You just it's say it's got EC comics horror feel with the axe. Yeah. Uh, caution: actual scene does not appear within Probationer exactly like this. <laughs> I mean, that's true with kids. With kids' rule, like that scene is not in the comic. So no. it's very like like what what you know, it's such an unforced error. You know, um, inside the comic, Steve apologizes for um, lefty for 
Look out for less lefty adversary Ray Jarvis being called Jenkins for the last two issues, which is yeah. pretty amazing. Um, there's letters from a kid whose whose mom uh, put the hook jaw transfer on his jean jacket upside down. Oh no! Yeah. Um, another one who customized a toy shark into a hook jaw model, which sounds pretty awesome, complete with tiny clay humans stuck between his teeth. Of course. Um, <laughs> Also, uh, Money Man's headed to Torquay, which I believe is in like Cornwall or something. Yeah, Torquay. Torquay, excuse me. Yeah. Uh, he loves going to these seaside towns for sure. Because it's got to be better to be chased by kids in like like by the ocean as opposed to just like in the middle of Birmingham or something like that. Like he has pre- done previously. Um, a second page of letters includes a kid uh, walking through wet cement while reading action and a poem about Hookjaw. Of course. Definitely. <laughs> Meanwhile, Action Mouse builds a spaceship to travel to the sun. It won't be too dangerous, though, because it'll go at night. Oh. All, uh, awesome. There's also an ad for the start of the dedicated Roy of the Rovers comic, which premiered in September 76 and ran until 1995. I just think that's all. I, sports comics remain a- alien to me, so I always think they're interesting to see how popular they are. They, 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 they are in England. Yeah, amazing. We'll talk more about that when we get to uh, Lefty. Indeed. Uh, Mid-issue, there's a third page of basketball tips. This time it's about defense. And this part really threw me because they seem to describe a four-man basketball team with two forwards, a post, and a guard, which is not how basketball is organized, I guess. It's five people with a center, whatever. Um, So it seems like this is like – this feels like the book they've gotten to talk about basketball may be quite old. I don't know. (laughs) Suspect. (laughs) Absolutely. And – um. Speaking of suspect zombies, um, <laughs> it's story five, Hell's Highway. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> Truckers. I, you know, yeah, it's uh, this feels very 70s. Like yes. even it it doesn't have the, uh, um, sorry, the, the writers, uh, um, Chris Lauder and the artist Mike White. Um, and while it, it, it doesn't have the patented uh, uh, Wagner Grant CB radio talk, it, you know, the very like Smokey the Bandit Cannonball Run sort of feel generally, you know, with, yeah. with an action twist, of course, but still this sort of, you know, like truckers being cool, a, a weird concept. It I, is, or, yeah. It's something that was, as you say, very 70s, yeah. Yeah. So there's two. So of course, two truckers, Danny and Steve. I I I think we, we've determined that I believe Danny's the blonde one. I'm I'm not sure, but um, they do. You know, they've been forced to do the U.S. government's dirty work. Most recently, they, they've been transporting around an assassin named Court in the Chicago area in the most inconspicuous of vehicles, their their 18 wheeler truck. Um, the last episode, the assassin killed a mob boss, and now a gang war is brewing on the the lawless streets of Chicago. And the Oscar Goldman lookalike agency boss Hartwell suggests to court that Danny and Stevie made scapegoats for it. <laughs> of course, yeah, send just them in. More spycraft. Well, well, you know, they're already there. They were in on the killing, so they're basically just saying, like, yeah, kill Danny and Steve and and frame them for the for the crime. Yeah. Um. So, uh, court calls some calls some of his uh, mob connections and rats out Danny and Steve to them, and then tries to escape, but Danny finds him first, and so they're forced to all roll out through Fort Wayne when they come across a syndicate roadblock. Oh no, here we are. Trouble. 
Yeah. They're forced to, to break, and they, then they see that a court has escaped from their trucks, so they're all alone against these gangsters. They're under attack from mob goons. One of them tries to jump in the side of the window and um, like, l- like threaten them through the driver's side window. And Danny closes the window on him. But it's really funny because it's like a, it's, uh, you know, your, your old school, like, like hand Wind roll windowed. windows. Yeah. So the fact that he um, closes it and like chokes this guy with it means that he's either really fast at those windows or that guy was not very aware of what was happening. No. <laughs> Um, and Steve gets um, guns down some guys as well. Shootout just sort of goes. Um, one guy's about to throw a grenade, and Steve shoots him, so the grenade throw- blows up over him instead, which is a pretty cool move. Uh, this um, loosens a truck with logs on it that was part of the roadblock, and then there's logs everywhere. Steve heads up to the roof of the truck to deal with that court. They have a shootout on the roof of the truck. Um, when they get near an overpass and in an incredibly awesome but also kind of terrifying move, Danny grabs Court's legs and hoists him upwards so that he takes the low bridge directly in the face, killing him with an explosive gar And a full panel of it. No, no messing. They're going to show you. Yeah, like, I mean, you see, like, his glass was crunching off of his face and stuff. As like, his some... face disintegrates. Ugh. It's really, really rough, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> Back in Washington, though, their boss Hartwell is pretty jovial about this whole planning to kill them as mob patsies thing. You know, you gotta have a tough skin in this business, whatever. <laughs> Real tough. It's um, a tough life being a trucker. Especially like a uh, a blackmailed by the government or dirty work kind of trucker. That's like the yeah. worst. Kind. That's like m- maybe the third worst kind of trucker. Like after the guys that have to transport. Uh, I had a joke here. I don't know. After the guys who have to, ha- have to transport like uh, used diapers or something like that. That's like All right, the worst yeah. one. Um, anyway. <laughs> Some other truckers think, or actually transporting toxic waste seems bad too, because some other truckers are going through rough terrain in the pouring rain when they go off the side of a cliff and explode, dropping a bunch of danger barrels into a small mountain reservoir. Wonder what happened to that. Yeah, we we cut um, a couple to a uh, to a government meeting, or sorry, to a meeting of government jerks, I should say. And Hartwell's being yelled at to find the barrels. There's ten barrels of toxic waste. They don't know where they are, but hey, they're they're sealed. And things should be cool, right? Yeah, uh, sure, no yeah. problem. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably. Why not? Uh, six months late. Six months later, Danny and Steve are once again yelling at Hartwell about their job and the whole like you know being sent to die a bunch of times. And he then gives them an easy job, sending them to the Missouri Arkansas border to be bait for some Hell's Angels down there. <laughs> Luckily, though, they won't be going alone as the trailer of their truck is full of assorted stone cold killers who are just chilling <laughs> out back there, I guess. With their guns, uh, their shooters. Yeah. <laughs> they're, they're ready to go. You know, just, yeah, um, uh, Savage's Mad Dogs just, just hanging out in this truck. Um, soon they're driving to, into a town in the Ozarks and they find it seemingly deserted. They search around a little bit when suddenly they do find some townsfolks, but they've all gone crazy. It is literally the crazies, isn't it? Absolutely. You know, it's it's very like a zombie action here. The, just their truck gets swarmed by these crazy crazies, the crazy hillbillies, and they got to drive like mad to escape, even like blasting through buildings and stuff. Which I was I always love in this. Like that's my favorite part of Hell's Highway. They use the truck to just destroy just architecture, you take know? out buildings. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's that, that that scratches a real primal itch for for me for sure. Um, they manage to escape and drive out. But when Steve checks on those killers in the back, they aren't there. And instead, the, tra- the trailer's full of crazies and they're attacking Steve. Of course. 
yeah. At least one of these uh, of these crazies has managed to find a shotgun in the back, and he's drawing down on Steve when some quick breaking by Danny knocks him off the side of the truck. See, Steve quickly seals the rest of the crazies in the trailer and heads back to the cab and just sort of like confirms that the, the killers must have all been taken out and just bad, bad times, really. And it seems like they should scrub the mission when suddenly the Hells Angels show up. Oh, these Hells Angels. Oh, no. Yes. <laughs> um, closer to home, though, that shotgun crazy has apparently held on to the truck, climbed around to the passenger side door and blasts our guys barely missing Danny. Then the Hells Angels attack. Oh, my God. I mean, it, it rains and pours, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. You've got the crazies <laughs> from George Romero. And now you've got the Hells Angels. Ugh. Yeah. For the Hells Angels from David Lynch. It's just every yeah. Know, it's a real, real mashing of styles here. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the bikers toss some smoke bombs, and the uh, the, the leader didn't count. Uh, sorry, the, the 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 leader tells them of the bikers tells them to pull over, but he didn't count on a shotgun wielding crazy still having one barrel to fire and get shot in the face. Yep. Um, the truckers then decide that actually this plan can still work and open up the trailer door, unleashing a horde of crazies onto the bikers, and it's just a massacre. Ugh. They manage to blast through the remaining bikers, and everything seems under control, but there's still that town full of crazies behind them, and frankly, as heroes, they gotta do something about it. Oh no, they gotta go back. Yeah. Next time on Hell's Highway, aggro for Hartwell and Mayor. They know the secret. So presumably this is what the toxic waste did, then, uh, Conrad. Yes, I must imagine that uh, that the toxic waste is you know filtered into the aquifer and is now driving everybody into you know, insane killers. And our second crazed Hell's Angel gang from Chris Lauder in this uh, month's worth yeah, of that, comics. That's true, actually. <laughs> in Martin Barker's um, history of action or history of a violent comic, he said that maybe uh, Jack Adrian, aka Chris Lauder, must have had a bad experience at Hell's Angels one time. <laughs> I mean, there's such a there's such a great late seventies um, um, villain. You know, some showed up in in in, in blackjack as well. <laughs> a lot of stuff here. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 such a villain of the era. These deadly bikers, or um, I I think we see them a little bit in um, not in Invasion, but in Disaster 1990. Um, I, I think we see that even young Savage is deadly because he takes out a a a, a game of, of 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 bikers as well. And they sort of show up so much, right? Um, and so, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, speaking of, uh, people playing deadly games or something, it's, uh, story six, look out for lefty sports comics. Here we yes. go. I guess speaking of a uh, controversial action stories as well. Um, oh boy. Yes. Writer, Tom Tully, artist, Barry Mitchell and Tony Harding. So. Uh, Kenny Lefty Lampton. He's working to the bone by his soccer team, the Wig the Wigford Ro- Rovers, because he's a junior player and's got to do a bunch of grunt work. Plus, he's made an enemy of the uh, senior player Ray um, Jarvis, aka Ray Jenkins, as he's called in these first two issues. And his drunk old granddad is fresh out of the hospital from drinking too much potato wine. Of course, as you Definitely. do. Definitely, that's very uh, Steptoe and Son, as I'm told. Um, yes. So Lefty has a game tonight, but Granddad has some errands for him to run first. He's got to deliver a bunch of scale weights to a shopkeep. Um, apparently, it's easier to cheat um, customers when you use scale weights as opposed to more modern scales. So, you know, we're doing it. Um, but they're super heavy. So he's just carrying this really heavy bag around with him to get to the stadium. 
Of course, yeah. He's got his big bag full of weights and he's got a dead right arm, but he can still go on with his left foot. Yeah, luckily he doesn't need that arm for for football, you know. Um, So Lefty has to play hard this game or he'll lose his spot on the team to Ray Jarvis' younger brother. And so, who's gunning for Lefty's spot? And the uh, as they head out, the crowd's pretty big to see Lefty in action. And he's, he's, you know, he imagines himself playing on the English national team and being real cool. But it's brought back to real life as we see Angie's brought a bunch of her girlfriends with her, and they're all all cheering him on and stuff. It's very nice. <laughs> um, yeah. Not to Jarvis's brother though; he makes fun of him for having a a, a horde of female fans in the stands. I mean, that's real lame, I guess. Uh, Terrible, yes. Yeah, who'd want that? Um, the, the the game gets going, and Jarvis makes a seemingly good pass to Lefty, but the ball has a ton of spin on it, so that Lefty has trouble handling it once the ball gets to him, and this makes him look like he's like kind of messing things up. At the throw-in, then uh, Jarvis leaves Lefty on his own; his man handled by the opposing side. Lefty yells at Jarvis, and things are getting hot on the pitch. But because, like, the things that Jarvis is doing to Lefty are sort of hidden, it makes him look like he's getting, like, a big head as opposed to being screwed by another player. So he's doing all these passes that look like good passes, but they're they're actually, the ball's got spin on it, or it's a hospital pass, as we'd say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very in-depth soccer stuff. I'm sort of, you know, this I, I'm out of my <laughs> element with this, but I'm, I'm, I'm doing my best with how, how the physics work. Yeah. In in Prague for uh 32, there's a there's a a big ad for getting be- better at soccer right before Lefty, which I I think is good tie-in advertising. Yes, 40 um, ways to get better. <laughs> yeah. And as the game continues, Jarvis keeps serving passes to Lefty with spin or yeah, more more hospital passes as you say. So it looks like he's screwing up all the time um while Jarvis himself is able to score successfully. Yeah. And then it gets the, worse. Yeah. At the half, Lefty confronts Jarvis and, he, and the coach yells at him for it. And as the game starts, Lefty just decides to go into business for himself. He's playing, you know, big man hero ball, basically just, just taking him, taking the ball himself and, and going a, and, and, and taking a shot on goal despite heavy coverage as a, the opponent's fan jeer, fans jeer loudly. Later, a volley comes his way. And when Lefty goes to take it, Jarvis kicks his ankle out, which is, you know, not cool. Lefty goes down and Angie in the stands gets a plan. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, this is not great. She she sneaks over to the to those opposing fans, and from that group, just throws a bottle directly at Jarvis's head, taking him out. Oh no! <laughs> the the cops come around and they look for you know and and basically arrest these fans because like you know they're like oh she did it. She's like what? Like I'm the trainer's daughter. Like why would I throw a why bottle at my that? own teammates? Yeah, and so, Lefty says, "Good old Angie." Oh no! Yeah. So the the fans are bu- are are arrested, and Jarvis is taken away by the medics. And so Lefty's free with the last fifteen minutes left in the game to uh, to, to prove himself. He's got to do it fast, so he scores a goal right away. And this is one of those things that that's that was I, I know is also mentioned as a reason for action being censored. This sort of like incident of soccer hooliganism, hooliganism basically. So it's it's issue thirty two. It's the one with the Carlos Agro co- cover right. with the policeman on the floor, and then inside it has a soccer fan uh, bottling somebody from the crowd with a coke, a, a glass coke bottle, um, and her boyfriend sort of encouraging her by saying, "Good old Angie." Yeah, and oh, the trouble this caused, Conrad. Oh dear. <laughs> 
the Football Association, oh, head teachers, oh, Mary Whitehouse, everybody attacking this particular um, episode of Look Out for Lefty. And otherwise, seemingly innocuous, innocuous football story. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I thought this was going to be worse than it was, actually, because I had remembered reading that like Lefty actually told Angie to glass him or something yeah. like that, which isn't actually in, in the text of the comic, which, which is good at least, but yes. is very is kind of a shocking thing. And I, and I do think it's really funny that um, now a Tom Tully sports comic has has almost or completely canceled two um, comics that I've done podcasts about. Yes. Because also um, the Tom Tully written in Inferno would cause a lot of problems for uh, for 2000 AD as well. Yeah, I know. Oh, dear. Just, you just, it's just a sports comic. Just can't, you know, just like can't stop, can't stay out of trouble. You know, that, that, that Tully. Uh, uh. <laughs> so finally... We we get back to the action. Uh, Lefty takes another big shot, and this one knocks the goalie unconscious, which allows another player to score. The goalie's carted off, and the crowd's going wild for Lefty and his tough play style. Uh, they they say something about Jarvis, and in this one, like if you look closely, you can see that the font's a little differently. It's clearly been whited out and rewritten right before they went to press um, to to fix the name change. Uh, right, which, this is where they is, uh, is pretty excellent. It, yes. Yeah. Like, I don't know, there's one where you can, I don't know, to me, just the the typesetting of the uh, of the name Jarvis looks looks different from the rest of the page. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So now the opposing team's playing really hard, like lefty gets a hard tackle, you know, just because he took out their goalie, which is ridiculous. He, He gets a free kick. But instead of a massive blast like through the wall, he hits a chip shot that um, no one's ready for and scores. It's 3-0. Yeah, Lampton's got skill as well as power, shouts the, uh, uh-huh. the crowd. <laughs> just before full time, Lefty scores a third goal, a hat trick, and the fans are delighted. The team owner just seems moderately impressed, but the coach says he's just you know doing that to keep Lefty humble, basically. He also gets big news, which is that he'll be a substitute for the game for the, uh, for the first team next week. He's on the full team. Yeah. And Jarvis isn't pleased by this and muscles Lefty around, which causes Lefty to drop his bag full of those scale weights right on Jarvis's foot. Oh, no. Uh. Which might even lead to Lefty being on the real team because he's like disabled Jarvis with a broken foot, maybe. We knew that bag of weights um, was going to pay off somewhere. You know, Chekhov's bag of That's weights, it. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Lefty and Angie hop on a bus and, and a cop braces them on there thinking Lefty is drunk but no officer he's just a new soccer star and desperately needs to take a nap because he's asleep on the bus he's had a very busy and eventful three issues absolutely yeah, yeah. you know score some goals almost get, or get, get cancelled it's bad times absolutely you know? yeah. the last page Next, of this one looks yeah. pretty rushed doesn't it um, the artwork it looks like they were on a yeah. it was definitely on a deadline for the last page I mean, that can really vary in or, you know, it's something to keep an eye out for with all these actions, I think. It seems like the turnaround time is very fast yeah. and I could almost see off, like artists putting it off just because there isn't a lot to do because it's just three pages. But there also is a lot to do because all these pages have like 12 panels. In them. Absolutely. <laughs> so yeah. you've got to just just do a lot of work with them. Yeah. And speaking of a dark cloud of impending doom, it's story seven, Hellman of Hammer Force. Ah, war comics time now. Absolutely. It's funny, um, when Action launched, it was mostly war comics and sports comics, and now there's just one of each left in the uh in in the, the comic. Last strip standing. You know, yeah, absolutely. I guess, you know, we're we're winnowing away to just the the, the, the pure action. 
<laughs> of course. Uh, and have, sorry, go ahead. Well, talking about trashy paperback novels, have you come across the works of Sven Hassel? Sven Hassel. I've, I, I believe I've heard of him just when I was doing research for, or I've, I've heard about him through talking about Hellman. Yeah. He had these, these novels from the German's point of view. Yeah, so he was Danish, but he, I do believe he served in the German army and he wrote this series of novels about um, a German panzer division that, to a, oh, for some reason they were incredibly popular here in the UK you know from novels about the Germans um, there was a, again there was a fair amount of sex and violence uh, I think I read one <laughs> at course. school because of that um, and yeah here we have um, the comic equivalent Hellman of Hammer Force or of the Russian front as he will become indeed yeah he's sort of just he's he, he's fairly new on the Russian front yeah. now so he's still still Hammer Force but yeah I mean I it it is, I think, very much like like reading a book from the werewolf's perspective or the vampire's yes. perspective or something like that. I mean, I know, especially in England, just World War II remains such a big um, like um, setting for for stories and stuff. Yeah, um, in in comics, especially, I know, like 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 there there are British comics that that are just World War II stories or or mostly World War II stories, which. I don't know. I'd say that it seems like there, there, there could be only so many stories that, that, that you could mine from there. But then I remember that like almost that 70 percent of video games are also about World War Two. You know, it's just a, an ample source of, uh, of, of of telling war stories for sure. Yeah, all the time. Um, but so, OK, OK, Eamon, it's it's July 1943 and the Battle of Kursk is raging. Major Kurt Hellman, though, is a soul is the sole survivor of his tank company, except for fellow sole survivor Wa- Waffen SS officer Gruber. There's that name yeah. again. Um, who we saw escape from um, the carnage last episode, and now sneaks up on Hellman and pulls a gun on him. Of course, it's it's like the bas- final yeah. showdown. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't know if you if uh if if, if you've seen this, but basically last episode, um, or yeah, the um the this tank division sort of had Hellman's Hammer Force guys and a uh, and an SS tank division, and the two of them had a big rivalry that sort of culminated with the SS tanks forcing Hammer Force to go through a minefield, um, which. And so all of all of Hellman's uh, uh, tanks and pretty much everybody but Hellman were killed by the mines. And he then took the the uh, the the head of the SS division, uh, this Gruber guy, hostage, and forced the SS elephant elephant tanks to go toe to toe with a uh, a Russian tank division um, without any camouflage or anything like that. So they were in turn slaughtered by the Russians. Ah, oh, right. Okay. So, so that's sort of the background to this. So they're um, so so Gruber and um, Hellman are, are the respective sole survivors of their tank divisions, and and they hate each right. other, you know, sure. as you do. Um, <laughs> so Gruber ties Hellman up and forces him to uh, just you know march through the Russian countryside. They arrive at a deserted farm where Gruber prece- uh, prepares a noose to hang Hellman from a hayloft, and as Gruber prepares to make Hellman jump, the major sees a bunch of Russians have arrived in the farm. As well of course yeah. yeah distraction time constant russians everywhere you know you gotta gotta save yourself yeah. i guess um as gruber oh, i'm sorry so the uh the the two germans hide and hellman tries to think and make a plan the russians are it, 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 it's basically a tank and a bunch of infantry guys and they hide their tank under a nearby haystack as suddenly hellman kicks gruber in the face 
Gruber falls off the side of the barn, seemingly to his death. But now the Russians know Hellman's up there. They're trying to keep things quiet, so they go in with bayonets. But Hellman's able to fight back and take them out with a with a pitchfork. Of good, good pitchfork. Per, per, first bayonet action yep. here. Um, a pair of German tanks roll into view as the disguised Russians uh, tr- uh, draw a bead on them. And Hellman makes his move, throwing burning hay onto the hidden Russian tank. And the insulting inferno burns the Russians alive. Ugh, grisly deaths. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if this would act, if like hay would burn hot enough to really mess with, with, a, with a tank. But um, I'll accept it. Yeah, we'll buy it in a, in a comic. Yeah, <laughs> yeah fine. Um so soon the tanks roll up and thank Hellman for the help, but it's one army tank and one SS tank. Things seem cool until the SS guys sees that with his final breath, Gruber wrote, Ver damn Hellman on the ground. <laughs> so, As you do. This seems to implicate Hellman in something, but the SS can't prove anything. Um, Hellman's brought back to the city of Oral, a city that must be held at all costs, but the Germans are pulling out. And the only troops that he, um, and, and Hellman's given control of the city, but the only troops he has to help him are military prisoners, a penal company. Ah, the Legion of the Damned. They will be his next tank crews. (laughs) Hellman, of course, is skeptical about these prison troops, and they are in turn skeptical of Hellman to the point of rioting. Um, You know, the riot seems to rage out of control, and things are looking bad, when suddenly Hellman shows up in a King King Tiger tank. He is tankety tank. you know, that's, you know, again, like, when all you have is a tank, all the, or when all you have is a hammer, all problems look like nails. Yep. And in this case, all Hellman has is a tank, so all his problems have tank-based solutions. <laughs> he sort of b- blocks their exit with the, with, with the tank and proceeds to win their respect by using the tank to beat them up, basically. Of course, um, yes. Like, you know, hits them in the head by, by traversing the turret. He's greased the tank up so that, so... <clears throat> So the soldiers can't climb it, um, and he like you know dodges behind him when they use stolen guns to shoot at him and stuff like that. Um, this does manage to win their trust. He kind of also says that like he's damned just like them because they're all gonna die here, pretty sure. Um, and suddenly he's just got a crew of badass convicts to run his tank, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah well, there you go, the Legion of the Damned. He's got a new tank crew. Yeah, best damn best tank crew in Germany. Yeah. Um, they roll out on patrol, observing the regular German troops marching out of the area, when suddenly they notice a pair of Russian scout tanks. He orders them not to fire, tricking the Russians into thinking that Oral has been completely abandoned, and that gives Hellman a chance to fight, if he can trust his new troops. So it's going to be uh, tricky. Yeah, time for some, some tricksy tanks action. Um, Hellman prepares the ground for the fight, um, which includes laying his King Tiger in ambush. Soon the rest of his troops arrive, but they haven't been outfitted as promised. Like, they were promised, like, uh, tanks and the best weapons and equipment. Instead, they have old rifles and barely any helmets, which is ridiculous. Yeah, you've been double-crossed, Major. Ah, uh, these... I'm starting to not trust these Germans very no. much. Um, <laughs> um this sends the uh, a shell shocked soldier named Mad Ludwig from us uh, who uh, went mad in Stalin who, who uh, you know got um, PSTD in Stalingrad a- around the bend. He runs off ranting straight into the arms of the oncoming Russian advance, where he's just shot to custard by them. There's sort of like fifty bullets for each German soldier. Um, but Hellman, this gives Hellman a plan. Basic as the uh, 
as the Russian T-34 tanks covered in infantry rolled down the street. He's got some some tricks, some some plant, some some traps planted. He uses a cable as basically a a, a a trip line to strip the infantrymen off the tops of the tanks, and then his um, legions of the dam wades in and um, takes out the uh, the uh, tank crew, but not the tanks themselves. So then the the, the tanks are restaffed by the by the penal uh, legion themselves, and suddenly Hellman has his own tank division of stolen Russian tanks. Uh, have my tank force it's really this one's pretty cool actually yeah. luckily i guess all tanks sort of drive drive the same which is helpful yeah. um so um Hellman rolls out and he uses his king tiger and the stolen t-34s to stop the russian advance but after the fight Hellman's disgusted because the convicts jump out of their tanks and fall among the defeated russians like looting them for valuable gold medals and watches and stuff yeah. He's a bunch of criminals. Instead, he says they should do better weapons we need instead of fancy guns, metals. not gold. <laughs> and then that night, um, Hellman barely dodges being shot by a stolen Russian gun. These convicts can't be trusted. And neither can the Russians because they're sending in the shock army to attack the town at night. Under cover of darkness, the streets will run with blood. Oh, next time. Oh. Terror with the Russian rooftop raiders. It's pretty good, actually, Hammer from uh, Hellman Force. Uh, Jerry Finley Day, Mike Dory. It's a good combination. Yeah, absolutely. This is the um, like yeah. I I, I always love Jerry Finley Day's um war war stories, be they in the past or the future. Yeah, um, and um, you know, uh, Mike Dory's a really good choice with this sort of the uh, the invasion t- uh, team. You know, and it really is a good job of sort of. You know, he both is able to draw Helm and is looking very noble, and everybody else is looking very um like 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 uncouth basically. Yeah. and I I think really suits suits his art style for sure. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, as you say, yeah. uh, the uh, then the story about the good werewolf from the, the werewolf's point of view. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting thing. This one's got a lot less um like 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 moral concerns as other Hellman's. So I think I like this one. Th- like. This has been some of the best stuff, just because there's been much less of Helmut holding his nose while he sort of, you know, wins the war for Germany, which I was appreciate. I, I appreciate when it's not about that, I guess. Yeah. Um, but speaking of World War II action, it's Story Eight: Greed's Grudge War. Oh, wrapping up. Get, yeah, this is the uh, the end of the war. Oh my gosh! Uh, writer again, Jerry Finley Day with artist Massimo Bellardinelli. So uh, Jimmy Green and John Bold, two uh, British commandos. Green hates Bold. Bold thinks they're buds. Um, and they're doing an obstacle course with Green still smarting about being busted back down to private after striking Bold last episode. Yep. Oh, dear. Um, while Green is traversing a river on a two-row bridge, Bold throws his flashbang at him and Green falls into the water. He gets real pissed off now, takes it very personally, and he knocks Bold into the water too. And because he's just struck a superior officer, Green is under arrest. The colonel will put a bomb under you for this, Green. Yeah, he's uh, he's brought in front of a court martial and is given thirty days in the glass house, the military prison. So again, just more solitary, you know, more military, military prisons. Solitary yeah, apartments. yeah. Um, the sergeant, he's um, he the the sergeant in charge of this is a real tough customer. He like punches Green, forces him to do menial labor and take tough hikes and stuff like that. It's, it's very similar, actually, to earlier action story uh, sports not for losers, where a character is sent to sent, sent to prison. Prison and has to deal with like like a tough prison governor and stuff. Yeah, 
In in 30 days, Green is out and Bolt offers to get him to come along on a big raid, which is going to be a rehearsal for the invasion of Europe. Um, Green's very quiet. He's sort of like, yeah, okay, fine. Bold thinks that Green's feeling down, but in fact, he's just stewing in his own juices with hatred for Bold. Oh no, the, the grudge continues. Like this is, but this is it. Like he's now like, I'm going to kill you. Like it's less like I'll show you Bold and more I'm going to kill you Bold. Like this second to last issue ends with him drawing his rifle and just staring at Bold like through, through the crosshairs. Literally and stuff. crosshairs, yeah. Literally crosshairs indeed. Um, so final episode the grudge war is paid in full which like um um david from where eagles dare on our last episode mentioned this but it is rough sometimes how these uh front titles of action stories spoil the story (laughs) that's about to happen here's what's gonna happen and it does yeah it's i'm i'm about to read it you don't have to like (laughs) tell me you know i bought the comic (laughs) <laughs> yeah so so german soldiers on a beachhead are shocked to see a british invasion force attack attacking in broad uh, daylight the whole thing's in, in is a shambles the canadians are behind schedule and so are green and bold yeah they're infiltrating ahead on this beach house and they am- and they finally get there and ambush a german machine gun nest killing them all they take the nest and green has bold hold his position while he goes down to the shore to lead every to, to lead the allied troops up but Green is ready for his revenge, and he shoots Bold in the back. Oh, no. With a German bullet for the ultimate irony, I guess. Um, but this doesn't kill him. Instead, Bold is picked up by other troops and basically carried back to the boat. Like, this thing's not working. We're going to scrub the invasion. Meanwhile, Green is waiting in the gun nest when German reinforcements arrive. He guns them down, too, and then sees the Brits are pulling out. He makes a, a fighting retreat, and there's a really cool moment, or what would be a really cool moment in most other things, where, like, Green is, like, rushing out into the water, and Bold's on the boat, like, screaming, like, oh, you gotta wait, we gotta buddy. save my buddy, yeah. we can't leave him behind, you know, while Green is like, oh my god, like, Bold survived, I thought I killed you, this is the worst day ever, <laughs> but as he goes... Um, the Germans are hot on their heels and the uh, boat that they're escaping and no one has any ammo left in their guns. So they're just forced to sit and watch as Green is shot in the back by the Russians. Oh no, that's the end of the, Green. Yeah, the boat heads home and Bold says that Green deserves a medal. The grudge war ends with Green floating face down in the French surf. Weird. The end of the grudge war. It's a weird damn <laughs> ending for this strip. Conrad, I'm yeah. I mean, like I will, you know. I wish, I wish that, or I, I don't know. Actually, like I'm, I'm of two minds of it. They could have really done a, 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 the exact same ending, but had Bold actually save Green and Green decide, oh, maybe Bold's not that bad or something like that. Yeah. Uh, actually, like like any permutation is a decent end. Like like Bold dying to save Green would also be decent. Um, but this one's definitely the 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 most downer ending, or the, or the, or the weirdest ending yeah. of just you know. Although I, I think it is a good lesson for the kids about um, like not holding grudges and like being a good person. You sure. Know? <laughs> like yeah, don't be like. It's Green. the hardest way to learn that lesson, but it's still rough, you know. Yeah, don't be like Green. Tries to kill Bold. Yeah. Bold still thinks he's his friend and wants to get him a medal for his actions. Yeah, weird. 
it's been it's been crazy just how how this story has evolved over time because sometimes like Green's got this murderous rage like we saw in in this section, but also other times other times like the Grudge War just sort of ends up being like a bickering married couple basically. Yeah. So it's it's real. It's, there's there can be some real tonal shifts, but I I I like this end. I think I think I think it seems like it works. Um, and you know I'm. I, I'm sad to see the Grudge War go. It's always been something that, while it hasn't been the best story, I, I've really enjoyed Bellardinelli's art for it, and um, it, it, it's just kind of a laugh, I guess, in sort of a World War II setting. It's, it's <laughs> fascinating to see Bellardinelli's artwork here in the mid '70s, uh, considering what he's going to go on and do. Uh, yeah, it's interesting stuff. Some of it, like, when they're doing the assault course, some of his work on the trees seems to be that you can almost see his alien weirdness creeping in there um, into this sort of otherwise yeah. fairly typical British war comic. Um, Absolutely. There, there, there's definitely times where there are landscapes that he's done that feel like they're just like meltdown yeah, landscapes sure. or, or, or ace trucking planets or something like that. Uh, and I guess this is, these are the kinds of stories that do get him the reputation that he's better at drawing non-humans that, than humans or something. Although I, I think they're fine. I don't yeah. know. Like, you know. I, th- I think some of that reputation is uh is uh, has has grown in mythology. I guess. Ah, so weird. Green um, trying to do the the wrong thing ends up doing the right thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and speaking of a trying to do the right thing and it all ending up bad, it's story nine, probationer, the final new action story. Yes. Uh, written by Stuart Wales. 16-year-old Dave Brockman is walking home at night in the future home of Skiz, Birmingham, when he sees a trio of guys breaking into a candy shop. They've stolen over 10,000 cigarettes, which is a very uh, 1970s thing to find in a candy shop. Absolutely, yeah. Why would you buy one? And that was a very 1970s thing to steal as well. (laughs) Oh, yes. Well, I mean, that just feels like, I don't know, like petty crime. I just remember there's an episode of The Simpsons where, um, like, Bart has, like, is working with the mob and suddenly has to hold a thousand cartons of, of cigarettes in his in, in his, uh, in his yeah, room. It's very as funny. As you do, um, as you do, of course. Um, anyhow, the cops show up and assume Dave is in on the robbery. They arrest him and he's put on probation for six months. Keep clean or go to Borstal, which I've learned is what we call juvie here in America. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, criminal reform school for juveniles. Yeah, indeed. So uh, when Dave comes home, his wheelchair-bound mother has a has fallen out of her chair and is having problems. He's got to get her to the hospital, but they don't have a phone and all the nearby pay phones have been destroyed. Again, another set is like seventies touch. Um, So I guess there's no choice, but to hotwire a nearby van and drive his mother to the, to the, to the doctor using that. Um, Trying to do uh, the right thing, but get, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that, this seems like the wrong way to do it. Like, you know, if it's a guy across the street, I bet you could even leave a note or, or ask him and, and, and he would do it. But who's to yeah. say? Um, the store owner reports this to the police just as Dave arrives back and returns the truck. So I guess everything's good? I don't know. Um, later, Dave is at his job at a chip shop when no good mix Slater shows up and blackmails Dave about the van theft. Oh, no. if, he doesn't, if he doesn't want him to, to squeal, Dave had better help him with a job. He has. Oh, no. That night, Dave and Slater um, go back to the chip shop because they're going to rob it. Uh. Um, and it gives you fairly detailed instructions how to break and enter. <laughs> yeah, you see him definitely like use a glass cutter to like cut a hole in the window and stuff. Mm. It's very like okay, like I I could figure this and out. Take the edges, to. yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's very um. It reminds me of I I remember like 
in um on TV show like on TV shows a lot of times they'll like have you when 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 a character is on drugs they'll do them like wrong just they don't yeah, give like too much away. people watching the TV show a way to do it. I remember there was a like like Beverly Hills 90210 where someone did meth and involved orange juice or something it was very strange. But anyway, <laughs> Um, they, they they break into the house, search around for money, but they hear a noise. It's the shop owner. Oh, no. Slater pulls a hatchet from the fireplace and clubs the man with the dull side. But it's no good because Dave checks the man and he's dead. You've killed him. Next time, Dave slides deeper into a life of crime. Oh, this is kind of a, a realistic thing where, like, you can't count on hitting someone over the head with a hard object to just knock them out and there's no consequences the way it is in, like, every single television show. Absolutely, yes. Like, like I, I think there there are more deaths from just, like, a blow to the back of the, from a single blow to the back of the head than, than people realize. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's PSA from Space Bit of 2000. <laughs> there you go. And it is, of course, the front cover of uh, issue 33. So there you go. That's yeah. right. Yeah, the, the axe attack from the perspective of, of the shop the owner. Shop owner. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So probationer is going to go on getting into trouble. Uh, trying to At least for like three more episodes. Yeah, he doesn't get very long, <laughs> yeah. does he? Before, of course, um, the apocalypse happens. Uh, action. Yeah. But yes. I got, I, yeah, the axe drops as it exactly. were. Exactly. <laughs> Literally, the axe will drop. But in the meantime, yeah. there's a good guy trying to do the right thing. He's, uh, oh, well. Absolutely. And with that, um, we... You know, Eamon Clark of the Mega City Book Club, we finished the stories for this action 31 to 33. Oh, my gosh. You get a lot in action, don't you? You get a lot of stories. (laughs) I mean, I got to say, like, even though most of these stories are three pages, there's so much incident in them that it it really is like a full meal just to go through three issues for sure. Yeah, and I feel very privileged to have got a chance to talk about issue 32 with you with that cover and the uh, infamous bottling happening inside as well. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I, I, it, it was kind of a conscious decision just because you, you, you helped me get started on this. I was like, all right, I got to save save the big guns for you just so that, you know, we could talk about some cool stuff. But speaking of cool stuff, I have one question for you, which is what were your top and bottom stories for these issues? Uh, okay, so... Um... I didn't really get the gist of uh, Green's Grudge War. So um, mm. I don't know about Probationer. I don't, proba- um, probation only gets one episode. So I don't feel it's had a chance. But Green's Grudge War um, is a very sort of like squeaks into last place, for me, I guess, just because it seems like such a weird damby ending for the strip. Um, yeah, definitely. About this guy who's had a grudge all this way through about a bloke who's actually... Turns out to be quite decent. But anyway. Yeah. Um uh, as for the best strip, I thought like I'm I'm cautious about choosing one of the strips that cause so much trouble. So I'm gonna say it's gotta be Hookjaw, isn't it? It's the best thing in the comic. Mm. It is ultraviolence, of course. Those beautiful red panels that you picked out. Um yeah, just another well, in fact, the first murder machine animal from British comics, possibly. Yes. Um <laughs> just goes around decimating uh, all and sundry. So, yeah, I guess, you know, if I had to put them in order, I'd probably put Hookjaw way at the top and then just those two episodes of Green's Grudge were a bit weird. What about yourself, Conrad? What's your top and bottom? Man, I feel I, I, I feel like we're on similar wavelengths here. I'd put Green on on the bottom. It's, it is, like you said, like, I mean, while the, the downer ending, I think, is is reasonable, it is a very weird way to end the end the comic i feel like the idea of them just becoming friends or something or even like a, a weird twist ending where they become friends but then bold is jealous of green or something would be so funny yeah. uh, <laughs> but you know like 
um, to have Green like just just dying, you know, you know the story ending with Green face down in the water is just such a weird end, such a weird choice, and it really stands out from the rest of action. I think. Yeah, absolutely um, strange. And and for top man, I gotta agree with you on Hookjaw, man. Just that, um, just that, just those two, the two, pa- the the two panels from the end of thirty one to the start of thirty two, where Sharky's got Rick Mason's head and he's sort of you know showing it at people, especially in thirty two where you see Mason's head and like his tongue's hanging out of his skull and stuff like that. That's just the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Yes. Yeah. Life, Mason's head know. is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, as and Joe Bob Briggs says, heads roll, limbs roll. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's such a, uh, oh my God, it's so crazy. And also like this feels like a way to kill a character. You know, they kill him and keep the story going. It really, because Rick Mason's been in Hookjaw since, since issue one. And so it really like confirms that Hookjaw is the star of this comic, I think, which is very interesting. An interesting stance for the murder machine, Absolutely, you know, yeah. for the, for the, the, the murder machine character. Although based on Hookjaw and Shacko, I feel like not an uncommon one for British comics. Like, I, I feel it's, it's, it's like, 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 like that. That feels like a weird, I don't know, difference between American and, and British stories like this. Because yeah. I don't know, because Hookjaw and, and, and Shacko are both from almost from the from the from the beast's perspective, where I feel like most American things I've seen are always from the from the guy hunting it. You yes. Know? Uh, yeah. Murder beasts in British comics. Uh, that's the title of my it. thesis coming up. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of books about it, too. You know, I always recommend uh, Night of the Crabs. It's a very excellent oh, yeah. one. Just in terms of talking like, about lurid, you know. trashy paperbacks again. Oh, absolutely! Um, you know, it's never far from my mind <laughs> for sure. <laughs> oh man! And with that, I hope everybody enjoyed the show. Real, like, long, amazing, super packed action story, but I um, reaction episode. But I think it's a, it's it's an, it's important for this topic just because this is such a an important section of of the action run. Um, feel free to contact us at Space. You know, I I love to hear what you think about action. Of course, feel free to contact us at spacespinner2000 at gmail.com on the 2080 forums or our Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter pages on Twitter at spacespinner2k for everything else. With spacespinner2000, we should be there. Eamon, where can we find the Mega City Book Club? Uh, you can find out all about Mega City Book Club at megacitybookclub.com. And uh, if you're tuning in recently, you may hear an episode about sports comics, uh, Conrad. Rock of the Reds, the reunion of John Wagner and Alan Grant as a writing partnership. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I'll be talking about that with Tony Esmond from the Awesome Comics Podcast. So yeah, go to uh, megacitybookclub.com or find me on Twitter or Facebook or all the usual places. Um- Amazing. All right. Come back next time as action whistles past its own grave with the final pre-censorship issues. <laughs> Dredger robs a bank. The kids rule the underground. Hookjaw is chilling in the channel. Uh, jealousy rages on in Death Game and Hellman is betrayed. It's the penultimate Space Spinner reaction. Oh, thrills await. Almost there. Indeed. Until then, I'm Conrad. They're Eamon, and we are Space Spinner Reactions. Unsealed